Hey everyone, welcome to the Latent Space Podcast. This is Alessio, partner and CTO and residence at Decibel Partners, and I'm joined by my co-host Swix, founder of Small AI. And today we are in the studio with David Sue from Rito. Welcome. Thanks. Excited to be here. We like to give a little bit of intro from what little we can get about you and then have you talk about something personal. You got your degree in philosophy and CS from Oxford. I wasn't aware that they did double degrees. Is that what you got? It's actually a single degree, which is really cool. So basically, uh, you study content, you study philosophy, you study intersection. Intersection is basically AI, actually, and sort of can computers think or can computers be smart? What does it mean for a computer to be smart? As well as logic, it's also another intersection, which is really fun too. So in Stanford, it might be symbolic systems or whatever, <laughs> and it's always hard to classify these things when, when we don't really have a word for it. Now, I guess everything's just called AI. <laughs> Five years ago, you launched Retool. You were in YC uh, Winter 17 and it's just been a straight line up from there, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> What's something on your LinkedIn that people should know about you? Maybe on the personal hobby or, you know, it's just something you're very passionate about. Yeah, sure. I read quite a bit. I probably read like two books a week around about. So it's a lot of fun. I love biking. Uh, it's also quite a bit of fun. So yeah. <laughs> Do you use retools to read? Like what the hell? <laughs> no, I don't use retool to read. <laughs> no, that'd be funny. What do you read? How do you choose what you read? Any recommendations? I'm mostly reading fiction nowadays. So fiction's a lot of fun. I think it maybe helps to be more empathetic, if you will. I think it's a lot of fun actually to sort of see what it's you know like to be in someone else's shoes. So that's a lot of fun. There's not a really good amount of philosophy as well. I find philosophy just so interesting, especially logic. We can talk more about that for probably hours if you want. So. <laughs> Yeah, I have a casual interest in epistemology, uh, and I think that anytime you try to think about machine learning in a, on a philosophical angle, you have to start wrestling with these like very fundamental questions about how do you know what you know? Yeah, totally. What does it mean to know? <laughs> that's its own podcast. We should do a special edition about it, but that's, uh, that's fun. Let's just maybe jump through a couple of things on Retool that I found out while researching your background. You did YC, but you didn't present a demo day initially because you were too embarrassed of what you had built. Can you maybe give any learnings to like founders on like jumping back from that? I've seen a lot of people kind of like give up early on because they were like, oh, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be to be a founder. They told me I would go to YC and then present and then raise a bunch of money and then everything was going to be easy. So how did that influence also how you build Retool today, you know, in terms of like picking ideas, deciding when to give up on it? Yeah, let's see. So this is around about 2017 or so. So we were supposed to present at the March demo day, but then we basically felt like we had nothing really going on. We had no traction, we had no customers. And so we were like, okay, well, why don't we take six months to go find all that before presenting? Part of that, to be honest, was I think there's a lot of noise around demo day, around startups in general, especially because there's so many startups nowadays. And I guess for me, I had always wanted to sort of under-promise and over-deliver, if you will. And in Demo Day, I mean, maybe you two have seen a lot of videos, like it's a lot of, honestly, over-promising and under-delivering. Because every startup, you know, says, oh, you know, I, you know, I'm going to be the next Google or something. And then you appear under it and you're like, wow, nothing's going on here, basically. And so I really didn't want that. And so uh, we chose actually not to present a Demo Day, mostly because we felt like we didn't have anything substantial underneath. Although actually a few other founders in our batch probably would have you know chosen to present in that situation, but we were just you know kind of embarrassed about it. And so we basically took six months to just say, okay, well, how do we get customers? And uh, we're not presenting until we have you know a product that we're proud of and customers that we're proud of. And fortunately, it worked out. You know, six months later, we did have that. So I don't know if there's much to learn from the situation besides 
I think social validation was something that I personally had never really been that interested in. And so it was definitely hard because it's almost like you go to college and all your friends are graduating, but you failed or something. You failed your final and you have to like redo it here. <laughs> and it's like, well, it kind of sucks that all your friends are up there and on the podium, you know, <laughs> presenting and they are raising a ton of money and you're kind of being left behind. But in our case, we felt like uh, it was a choice I and mean, we could have presented if we really wanted to, but, you know, we would not have been proud of the outcome or proud of what we we're presenting. And for us, it was more important to be true to ourselves, if you will, and show something that we're actually proud of rather than just, you know, raise some money and then shut the company down in two years. Yeah. Yeah. Any sad moment stories? From the YC days, could you tell in 2017 that Sam was going to become like run the biggest AI company in the world? Wow, no one's asked me that before. Uh, <laughs> let me think. Sam was, I think he was, I want to, I forgot, I think maybe president of YC in, in our batch. We actually were in his group actually at the very beginning, and then we got moved to a different group. I think Sam was clearly very ambitious when we first met him. I think he was very helpful and sort of wanted to help founders, but. Besides that, I mean, I think we were so overwhelmed by the fact that we had to go build a startup that we were not you know, honestly paying that much attention to everyone's partner taking notes on them. So. That makes sense. Well, and then just to wrap some of the retool history nuggets, you raised a Series A when you were at 1 million of revenue with only three or four people. How did you make that happen? Any learnings on keeping teams small? I think there's a lot of overhiring we've seen over the last few years. I think a lot of AI startups now are raising very large rounds and maybe don't know what to do with the capitals. So this is kind of similar, actually, from sort of why we chose not to present a demo day. And the reason was, it feels like a lot of people are really playing startup. I think PG has an essay about this, which is like, you're almost like playing house or something like that. Like, it's like, oh, well, I hear that in a startup, you're supposed to raise money and then hire people. And so therefore you go and do that. And you're supposed to, you know, do a lot of PR because that's what, you know, startup founders do. And so you could do a lot of PR and stuff like that. And for us, we always thought that the point of starting a startup is basically you have to create value for customers. If you're not creating value for customers, like everything else is going to, you know, nothing's going to work. Basically, you can't, you know, continuously raise money or hire people if you don't have customers, you're not delivering value for them. And so for us, we were always very focused on that. And so that's initially where we started. I think it's again, maybe goes to like the sort of presenting something truthful about yourself or staying true to yourself or something to that effect, which is we didn't want to pretend like we had a thriving business we could actually. And so the only way to not pretend was actually to build a thriving business. And so we basically just, you know, put our heads down and, you know, grind it away for probably a year, year and a half or so, just writing code, talking to customers. And I think that at that point we had raised something like maybe a million dollars, maybe a million and a half coming out of YC. So, I mean, to us, you know, to people, you know, that was a huge amount of money. I was like, wow, like, how are you ever going to spend a million and a half? Our runway was like, you know, five, six years at that point, right? Because we're paying ourselves 30, 40 K a year. And so then the question was not like, oh, we're going to run on runways. The question was like, we better find traction because if we don't find traction, we're going to, you know, just give up uh, psychologically. Because if you run an idea for four years, nothing happens. You're probably psychologically going to give up. And I think that's actually true in most startups, actually. It's like most startups die in the early stages, not because you run out of money, but really because you run out of motivation. And for us, had we hired people, I think it would have actually been harder for us because we would have ran out of motivation faster because when you're pre-product market fit, actually trying to lead a team of like, you know, 10 people, for example, to Marshall's product market fit, I think it's actually pretty hard. Like it's, you know, every day people are asking you, so why are we doing this? And you're like, 
I don't know, man, like, hey, trust me. And that's actually a very tiring environment to be in. Whereas if it's just like, you know, the founders figuring out product market fit, I think it's actually a much sort of safer path, if you will. You're also schooling less with employees. Like when you hire employees, you have an idea, you have front of market, you have customers. That's actually, I think, a lot more stable for a place for employees to join as well. So, yeah, and I find that typically the sort of founder employee relationship is employee expects the founder to just tell them what to do. And you don't really get critical pushback from the employee, even if they're a body and even if they like you as an early engineer, it's very much like the, the role play of like, once you have that founder hat on, you think differently, you, you act differently you, and you're more scrappy, I guess, in, in trying to figure out what that product is. Um, yeah, so I, I really resonate with this because I'm going through this right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. One thing we did actually early on that I think has paid a lot of dividends, especially, you know, it was a lot larger now, is we hired a lot of former founders. So I want to say like when we were 20, 30, 40 people, we were probably like half former founders at each one of those stages. And that was actually pretty cool because I think you infuse sort of a, you know, get things done kind of culture, a outcome oriented culture of like a very little politics. Uh, Cause you know, no one came from larger companies. Everyone was just like, this is my own startup. Let me go figure out how to achieve the best outcome for the customer. And so I think from a cultural perspective, even today, a lot of retail culture is sort of very self-startery. I think it's actually because of sort of these like, you know, early founders that we hired, uh, which was really, really, you know, we're really lucky to pat them. So. Yeah. And, and then closing off on, on uh, just a little bit of the fundraising stuff, uh, something notable that you did was when in 2021, when it was the sort of peak ZERP and everyone was raising hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, you intentionally raised uh, less money at lower valuations is your title. And uh, I think it, it's a testament to your just overall general philosophy in building retool that you are, you're just very efficient and you do things from first principles. Any um, updates on like, would you still endorse that? You know, would you recommend that to everyone else? What What are your feelings sort of two years on from that? Yeah, so exactly what you said is correct. We raised less money and a lower valuation. And I think the funny thing about this is that when we first announced that, even, you know, internally and both externally, I think people were really surprised, actually, because I think Silicon Valley has been conditioned to think, well, raising a giant sum of money at a giant valuation is a really good thing. So like, you know, you should maximize both the numbers, basically. But actually, maximizing both the numbers is actually really bad, actually, for the people that matter the most, you know, i.e. your employees or your team. And the reason for that is raising more money means more dilution. So if you look at, you know, a company like, you know, let's say Uber, for example, even if you join Uber at like, I don't know, like a $10 billion valuation, or let's say join before their huge round, which I think happened at a few billion dollars in valuation, you actually got diluted a ton when uh, Uber fundraises. So if, you know, Uber raises, uh, if Uber dilutes himself by 10%, for example, let's say they raise 500 to 5 billion, for example, every employee's stake goes down by 10% in terms of ownership. Same with, you know, previous investors, same with the founders, etc. And so if you look at actually a lot of founders in sort of, you know, the operations logistics space or, you know, those that fundraise like, you know, 2013, 2017, a lot of the founders by IPO only have a few percentage points actually for the company. And if the founders only have a few percentage points, you can imagine how, you know, how little the employees have. And so that I think is actually just a really, you know, bad thing for employees overall. Secondly, sort of higher valuation, given the same company quality, is always worse. So basically what that means is if you are fundraising as a company, you could command a sort of valuation in the market. You know, let's say it's, you know, X, for example. Maybe you get lucky and you can raise two times X, for example. But if you choose two times X, your company itself has not fundamentally changed. It's just that, you know, for some reason, investors want to pay more for it. You know, maybe today you're an AI company, for example. And so investors are really excited about AI, will pay more for it. However, that might not be true in a year or two years time, actually. And if that's not true in two years time, then you're in big trouble, actually. And so now I think you see a lot of companies that raised in really high valuations about 2021, 
And now they're like, man, we're at like 100x or, you know, we raised the 300x multiple, for example. And if we're at 300x then, you know, maybe now we're at like 200x. Man, we just can't raise money ever again. Like, you know, we have to grow like 50x to go raise money, reasonable valuation, let's say. And so I think that is really challenging and really demotivating for the team. And so I think a lower valuation actually is much better. And so if we're also retrospective to answer the question two years later, we did not predict, you know, the crash, if you will. Uh, but given it, I think we've done extremely well, mostly because our valuation is not sky high. Because if our valuation was sky, were sky high, I think we'd have a lot more problems. We'd probably have recruiting problems, for example. We'd probably have a lot of internal morale problems, et cetera. Uh, people would be like, you know, why is the valuation this way? We might have cash flow problems because we might have to go raise money again, you know, et cetera. But we can't because the valuation is too high. So I would urge, I think, founders today to quote unquote, like leave money on the table. Like there's some things that are not really worth optimizing. I think you should optimize for your, the quality of the company that you build, not like the valuation you raise that or the amount you raise, et cetera. So hindsight 2020, but it looks like, you know, you, you, you made the right call there anyway. <laughs> Maybe we should also, for people who are not clued into retool, do a quick, like, what is retool? You know, I, I see you as the kings or the inventors of the low code internal tooling category. Would you Agree with that statement? You know, how do you usually explain retool? I generally say it's like Legos for code. We actually hate the low code uh, moniker. We actually never use it. In fact, we have docs saying we will never use it internally uh, or even to customers. And the reason for that is I think low code sounds very dot developer. And developers, they hear the phrase low code, are like, oh, that's not for me. Like, I love writing code. Like, why would I ever want to write less code? And so for us, retool is actually built for developers. Like 95% of our customers actually are developers, actually. And so that is a little bit surprising to people. I'll generally explain it is, um, and this is you know, kind of a funny joke too. I think part of the reason why Retool has been successful is that developers hate building internal tools. And you can probably see why. I mean, if you're a developer, you probably build internal tools yourself. Like, it's not a super exciting thing to do. You know, it's like you piece together a CRUD UI. You probably, you know, piece together many CRUD UIs in your life before. And there's a lot of grunt work involved. You know, it's like, hey, state management. It's like, you know, data validation. It's like displaying error messages, like to bounce buttons. Like all these things are not really exciting, but you have to do it because it's so important for your business to have high quality internal software. And so what Rachel does is basically allows you to sort of uh, piece together an internal app really fast, whether it's a front end, whether it's a back end or whatever else. Um, so yeah, that's what Rachel is. Yeah, actually, you started hiring. And so I do a lot of developer relations and uh, community building work. And then you hired Kritika, who has now moved on to OpenAI, um, to start out your sort of DevRel function. And I was like, what is Retool doing courting developers? And then she told me about this, you know, developer traction. And I think that is the, the first thing that people should know is, which is that the burden and weight of internal tooling often falls to developers or it's an Excel sheet somewhere or whatever. But yeah, you, you guys have. <laughs> It basically creates this market, you know, in, in my mind, I, I don't know if there was someone clearly before you in, in this, but you know, you've, you've clearly taken over and dominated every month. There's a new YC startup launching with that. It's like, you know, we're, we're the, you know, open source retool, we're like the low, lower code retool, whatever. And it's, it's pretty, I guess it's endearing, you know, we'll talk about airplane uh, later on, but yeah, I think I, I've actually used retool, you know, in my, in my previous startups for this uh, exact purpose. Like uh, we needed a UI for uh, AWS RDS that they can, you know, like the rest of our non less technical people, like our sales operations, people could, could interact with and yeah, retool is perfect for that. Yeah, that's a good example of like, that's a, you know, application that an engineer probably does not want to build. Like building an app on top of Salesforce or something that is not exciting. It's almost like, it sucks. It's really limited. You know, it's like not a fun experience at all. But piecing it together in Retool is, you know, quite a bit easier. So yeah, let me know if you had any feedback, but also thanks for using it. Yeah, no, of course. Like more recently, I think about three, four months ago, you launched Retool AI. Obviously AI has been sort of in the air. I'd love for you to tell the journey of 
AI products ideation within Retool. Given that you have a degree in this thing, I'm sure you're not new to this, but like, when would you consider sort of this, the start of the AI product thinking in Retool? So we actually had a joke internally at Retool. We, on our product roadmap for every year, I think it was like 2019 or something. We had this joke, which was like, what are we going to build this year? We're going to build AI pair programming. That's what we always said as a joke. And so, but it was funny because we were like, ah, that's never going to happen. <laughs> but I'm like, let's add it because it's like a buzzwordy thing that enterprises love. So let's look at it. <laughs> and so it was almost like a funny thing, basically. But it turns out, you know, we're actually building that now. So this is pretty cool. So I would say maybe AI thinking on retool probably first started maybe like, I want to say maybe, you know, a year and a half ago, something like that. And when we first started thinking about it sort of in a, you know, philosophical way, if you will, it's like, well, what is the purpose of AI and uh, how can it help, you know, what retool does? And there were two sort of uh, main prongs, if you will, uh, value we got. One was helping people build apps faster. And so you know, you've probably seen that Copilot, you've seen sort of so many other coding assistants, user on an end, you know, stuff like that. So that's interesting because, you know, engineers, as we talked about, do some grunt work and uh, grunt work, you know, maybe could be automated by AI was uh, sort of the idea. And it's interesting. So we actually, I would say, kind of proved or disproved the hypothesis a little bit. If you talk to most engineers today, like a lot of engineers do use Copilot, but if you ask them, like, how much time does Copilot save you? It's not like coding is 10x faster than before. You know, coding is maybe like 10% faster, maybe 20% faster, you know, something like that, basically. And so it's not like a huge step change, actually. And the reason for that is we think is because the sort of fundamental frameworks and languages have not changed. And so if you're building, let's say, you know, like the sales ops tool we were talking about before, for example, let's say you've got AI to generate you know, a, you know, a first version of that, for example. The problem is that it probably generated it for you in like JavaScript because you're you know, writing for uh, the web browser, for example, right? And then for you to actually go proofread that JavaScript, for you to go read the JavaScript to make sure it's working, you know, to fix like subtle bugs that AI might have caused, uh, hallucinations and stuff like that, actually takes a long time and a lot of work. And so for us, the problem is actually not like the process of coding itself. It is more sort of the language or the framework we think is like way too low level. It's kind of like if you think about like punched cards, like let's say back in the day, you probably just like punch cards and AI could help you generate punched cards. Okay, you know, I guess that helps me punching cards is a little bit faster now because I have a machine punching them for me. But like when there's a bug, I still have to go read all the punched cards and figure out what's wrong, right? It's like it's a lot of work actually. And so for us, so that was the sort of initial idea was, can we help engineers code faster? You know, I think it's somewhat helpful to be clear. Like again, I think it's 10 or 20%. So we have things like, you know, you can generate school queries by AI, you can generate UIs by AI and stuff like that. So, so that's cool to be clear, but it's not, I think the you know, step change that I think is, you know, the, uh, we're investing somewhat in that, but the bulk of investment actually is a number two, which is helping developers build AI enabled applications faster. And the reason why we think this is so exciting is we think that practically every app, every internal app, especially, is going to be AI infused over the next like three years. And so every tool you might imagine, so like the tool you were even mentioning, like a sales operations tool, for example, probably, you know, if you were to build it today, you want to incorporate some form of AI. And so, you know, we see today, like uh, for us, like a lot of people build, you know, let's say sales management tools or retool. An example is there's a fortune, like 500 companies building like um, sales forecasting tools. So they basically have salespeople enter their forecast, you know, for the quarter, uh, at the beginning of every quarter, like, hey, I have these deals and these deals are going to close, these deals are not going to close, you know, I think I'm upside in these, downside in these, you know, stuff like that, basically. So you can imagine it's pulling in deals from your Salesforce database. And so it pulls in the deals and then actually uses AI to compute, so like, okay, well, you know, given previous deal dynamics, like these are the deals that are more likely to close this month versus next month versus this quarter, next quarter, et cetera. And so it could actually, you know, pre-write you a draft of, you know, your report, basically. And so that's an example where I think all apps, whether it's, you know, a sales app, you know, until, uh, let's say, fraud app, 
a you know fintech app, you know whatever it is, basically, especially internal apps. I think, like you said, Alessio, in order to make people productive, it's going to incorporate some form of AI. And so then the question is, can we help them incorporate this AI faster? And so that's why we launched like a vector database for example, built directly into Retool. That's why we you know launches all these AI actions, so you don't have to you know go figure out what the best model is and do testing and stuff like that. We'll just you know give it to you out of the box. So. For us, I think that is really the really exciting feature is can we make every app and also retool use AI a little bit and make people a little productive. So we talked with Jeffrey Wang, who's the co-founder and chief architect of Amplitude. He mentioned that just use Postgres vector. <laughs> when you were building retool vectors, how do you think about yeah, leveraging a startup to do it, putting vectors into one of the existing data stores that you already had? I, I think like you're really a quite large customer scale. So like you're maybe not trying to <laughs> get too cute with it. Any learnings and, and tips from that? Yeah, I think a generally the philosophical thing I think we believe is um we think the open source movement in AI, especially when it comes to all the supporting infrastructure, is going to win. And the reason for that is if you look at like developer tools in general, especially for such a fast moving space, in the end, like there are really smart people in the world that have really good ideas. And they're going to go build companies and they're going to go build projects basically around these ideas. And so for us, we have always wanted to partner with maybe more open source providers or projects, you could say, like PG Factor, for example. And the reason for that is it's easy for us to see what's going on under the hood. A lot of this stuff is moving very fast. So a lot of times there are bugs, actually. And so we can never go look and fix bugs ourselves. So we can contribute back, for example. But we really think open source is going to win in this space. It's hard to see about models. I, I don't know about models necessarily because it starts getting pretty complicated there. But when it comes to tooling, for sure, I think there's just like so much. There's an explosion of creativity, if you will. And I think betting on any one commercial company is pretty risky. But betting on the open source sort of community and the open source uh, contributors, I think is a pretty good bet. So that's why we have a different picture games. Awesome. And we're going to jump into the survey next, but we're going to put a bunch of links in the show notes about Resol AI and whatnot. Is there any most underrated feature, like uh, something that customers maybe love that you didn't expect them to really care about? I know you have a like text-to-SQL, you have UI generation, there's like so many things in there. Yeah, what, what surprised you? Yeah, so what's really cool, and this is my sense of the AI space overall, you know, if you're scared, uh, to take some YouTube as well, is that especially in Silicon Valley where a lot of the innovation is happening, I think there's actually not that many AI use cases, to be honest. And AI to me, even as of what, like January 19th, or, yeah, 19th of 2024, still feels like in search of truly good use cases. And what's really interesting though about Retool, and I think we're in a really fortunate position, is that we have this large base of sort of customers. And a lot of these customers are actually much more legacy, if you will, customers. And a lot of them actually have a lot of use cases for AI. And so to us, I think we're almost in like a, you know, really, you know, perfect or unique spot. We're able to adopt some of these technologies and then provide them to, you know, some, some of these like older players. So one example that actually really shocked and surprised me about AI was, um, so we have this one, uh, clothing manufacturer. I think it's, I think it's either the first or second largest clothing manufacturer in the world who's using retool and, you know, they're an enormous company with, you know, uh, very multinational. You know, stores on you know pretty every mall in the world, and so they have one problem, which is they need to design styles every year for the next year, basically for every season. So like, hey, just like summer twenty twenty four, for example, and what are we going to design? And so what they used to do before is they would hire designers, and designers would go to study data. They'd be like, okay, well, it looks like you know the floral patterns are really hot in like you know California, for example, in twenty twenty three, and like, do I think it's going to be hot in twenty twenty four? Well, let me think about it. I don't know. You know, so let me uh, maybe, uh, and if so, I, if I believe it is going to be hot, let me go design some floral patterns actually. 
And what they ended up doing in Retool actually is they actually automated a lot of this process away in Retool. So they actually now have built a Retool app that allows actually a non-designer, so like an analyst, if you will, to go analyze like, you know, who are the hottest selling patterns, you know, particular geos. Like this was really hot in Brazil, it was really hot in China, it was really hot, you know, somewhere else basically. And then they actually feed it into an AI and the AI, you know, uh, actually generates Dolly and uh, other you know, image generation APIs, actually generates patterns for them. And they put the patterns, which is really cool. And so that's an example of like, honestly, a use case I would have never thought about. Like thinking about like, you know, how clothing manufacturers create their next line of clothing, you know, for the next season. Like, I don't know. I, I never thought about it, to be honest. And nor did I ever think, you know, how it would actually happen. And the fact that they're able to leverage AI and actually, you know, leverage multiple things in Retool to make that happen is really, really, really cool. And so that's an example where I think if you go deeper into sort of, uh, if you go outside of Silicon Valley, there are actually a lot of use cases for AI. But a lot of this is not obvious. Like you have to get into the businesses themselves. And so I think we're, we personally are in a really fortunate place. But if you know, you're working in the AI space and want to find some use cases, please come talk to us. Like, you know, we're really excited about marrying sort of the technology with use cases, which I think is actually really hard to do right now. So it's bad. So yeah, you know, I have a bunch of like sort of standing presentations around like how this industry is developing. And like, the, I think the foundation model layer is understood. The lag chain vector DB rag layers understood. I always have a big question mark and actually have uh, you and Vercel V0 uh, in that box, which is like sort of the UI layer for AI. And like, you know, you, you are perfectly placed to expose those functionalities to end users, even if you personally don't really know what they're going to use it for. And sometimes they'll surprise you <laughs> with their creativity. One segment of this, and I, I do see some startups springing up to do this is related to the things that to, to something that you you also build but it's not strictly ai related which is retool workflows which is the sort of canvasy boxes and arrows point and click do this then do that type of thing like which which every what are we calling low code uh let's let's every internal tooling company <laughs> eventually builds you know i, I worked at a, a sort of workflow orchestration company before and we were also discussing internally how to make that happen but you, you are, you are obviously uh, very well positioned to, to that. Yeah. Basically, like, do you think that there is an overlap between retool workflows and AI? I think that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of interest in, um, sort of chaining AI steps together. I couldn't tell if like that is already enabled within retool workflows. I don't think so, but you could, you could sort of hook them together as kind of jankily. Like what's the interest there? You know, is it all of a kind uh, ultimately in, in your, in your mind? It is a hundred percent time. And yes, you can actually already. So a lot of people actually are building AI workflows down in Retool, which is, we're going to talk about that in a second. But a hot take here is actually, I think a lot of the utility in AI today, I would probably argue 60, 70% of the utility, like, you know, businesses have found in AI is mostly via ChatGPT, uh, and across the world too. And the reason for that is, I think the ChatGPT sort of I don't know, UI, you could say, or interface or user you know, experience is just really quite good. You know, you can sort of converse you know, with an AI, basically. But that said, there are downsides to it. If you talk to like a, you know, a giant company, like a JP Morgan Chase, you know, for example, they may be reticent to have people copy paste data into ChatGPT, for example, even on ChatGPT Enterprise, for example. Uh, some problems are that I think chat is good for one-off tasks. So if you're like, hey, I want a first version of representation or something like that, you know, and help me write this first version of a doc or something like that. Chat is great for that. It's a great, you know, very portable, you know, if you will, form factor. So you can do that. However, if you think about it, and you think about sort of economic productivity more generally, like chat, again, will help you like 10 or 20%, but it's unlikely that you're going to replace an employee with chat. You know, you're not going to be like, oh, I have a relationship manager at JP Morgan Chase, and I've replaced them with a you know, AI chatbot. 
like it's kind of hard to imagine, right? Because like, like the employees are doing a lot of things besides you know just you know generating you know maybe another way of putting it is like chat is like a reactive interface. Like it's like when you have an issue, you will go reach out to chat and chat might solve it. But like chat is not going to solve one hundred percent of your problems. It'll solve like you know twenty five percent of your problems like you know, pretty quickly, right? And so. What we think the next like big breakthrough in AI is, is actually like automation. It's not just like, oh, I have a problem. Let me go to a chatbot and solve it. Because like, again, like people don't spend 40 hours a week in a chatbot. They spend maybe like two hours a week in a chatbot, for example. And so what we think can be really big actually is you're able to automate entire processes by AI because then you're really realizing the potential of AI. It's like not, it's not just like, you know, uh, a human copy pasting data into an AI chatbot and you know, pasting back out or copying back out. Instead, it's like the whole process now was actually done in an automated fashion without the human. And that I think is what's going to really unlock sort of economic productivity or um, uh, that's what we're really excited about. And I think part of the problem right now is, you know, I'm sure you all have thought a lot about agents is that the agents are actually quite hard because like, you know, the AI is wrong, like, you know, 2% of the time, but then you like, you know, if you, let's say, you know, race to the power of seven, for example, that's actually wrong, you know, quite often, uh, for example. And so what we've actually done with workflows is we prefer, what we've learned actually is that we don't want to generate the whole workflow for you via AI. Instead, what we want you to do actually is we want, we want you to actually sort of drag and drop the workflow yourself and maybe you can get a V0 or something via AI, but you, it's coded basically. You, you should actually be able to modify the steps yourself, but every step can use AI. And so what that means is like, it's not the whole workflow is created by AI. It's that like every step is AI automated. And so if you go back to, for example, like the user was talking about, you know, with a clothing manufacturer, like that's actually a workflow actually. So basically what they say is, hey, every day, we each see all the data, you know, from our sales systems into our database. And then we, you know, do some data analysis. And, you know, that's just, you know, raw SQL basically. It's nothing too surprising. And then they use AI to go generate the new ideas. And then the analyst will look at the new ideas to approve or reject them, basically. And that is like a, you know, that's true automation. You know, it's not just like, you know, a designer copy pasting things as a chat GPT be like, hey, you know, give me a design. It's actually designs are being generated. They generate 10,000 designs every day. And then you have to go and approve or reject these designs. Which I think is a lot, you know, that's a lot more economically productive than just copy pasting stuff in the chat quickly. So we think sort of the AI workflow space is a really exciting space. And I think that is the next step in sort of delivering a lot of business value by AI. I personally don't think it's, you know, via chat or, you know, via agents quite yet. So that's a pretty reasonable take. Uh, it's, it's, um, disconcerting because like, I know a lot of people are trying to build what you already have in workflows <laughs> and um, you're, you're the incumbent sort of in their minds. I'm sure it doesn't feel that way to you, but like, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, you're the incumbent in their minds and they're like, okay, like how do I, uh, you know, compete with retool or, you know, different, differentiate from retool. As you mentioned, you know, all these connections does remind me that you're running up against Zapier, you're running up against maybe Notion in the distant future. And yeah, I, I think that there'll be a lot of different takes at this space and like whoever is best positioned to serve their customer in, in the way that they, they, they sort of need to shape is, uh, is going to win. Do you have a philosophy against around like what you won't build? Like what do you prefer to partner and, and, and not build in-house? Because it seems, I feel like you build a lot in-house. Yes, yeah, so there's probably two philosophical things. So one is that we're developer first. And I think that's actually one big differentiator between like Austin Zachary and Notion. We're actually very rarely see them actually. And the reason is we're developer first. Because developers, like, if you're like building a sales ops tool, you're probably not considering Notion if you're a developer. You're probably like, I want to build this via React basically or user tool. And so are you we build for developers? It's pretty interesting, actually. I think one huge advantage of selling the developers is that developers don't want to be given an end solution. They want to be given the building block so they can themselves go build the end solution. And so for us, like interesting point that equilibrium retail can get to is basically you could say, hey, retail is a consulting company and we basically build apps for everybody, for example. 
And what's interesting is that we've actually never gotten to that equilibrium. And the reason for that is with some of the developers. Developers don't want, you know, like a consultant coming in and building all the apps for them. Developers are like, hey, I want to do everything myself. Just give me the building blocks. It's like, give me the best table library. Give me, you know, good state management. Give me an easy way to create rest APIs and I'll do it myself, basically. So that I think is pretty. So we generally end up basically always building building blocks that are reusable by multiple customers. We have, I think, basically never built anything specific for one customer. So, so that's you know, one thing that's interesting. A second thing is when it comes to sort of, you know, let's say like in, in the AI space, what we're going to build and we're not going to build, we basically think about whether it's our core competency or whether there are unique advantages to us building it or not. And so if we think about the workflows product, we think workflows actually is a pretty core competency for us. And I think the idea that we can build a developer first workflows automation engine, I mean, I, I think after we released, you know, workflows through the workflows, there have been a sort of few copycats that are, I think, quite, quite far behind. Actually, they sort of are missing a lot of, I think, more critical features, but like, if you look at the space, it's like Zapier on one side, and then maybe like Airflow on the other. And so Retool Workflows actually is fairly differentiated. And so we're like, okay, we should go build that base. This is what else is going to build. Someone's going to build it. Whereas if you look at like Vectors, for example, you look at Vectors, like, wow, this is a pretty thriving space already if you know Vector uh, databases. Does it make sense for us to go build our own? Like, what's the benefit? Like, not much. We should go partner with uh, or go find technology off the shelf. In our case, could you vector? And so, for us, I think it's like, how much value does that add for customers? Do we have a different take on the space? Do we not? And in every product that we've launched, we've had a different take on the space. And the products that we don't have a different take, we just adopt what's off the shelf. Let's jump into the state of AI survey that you ran and maybe get some live updates. So you surveyed about 1,600 people last August in AI world, this busy like five years ago. And there, there were kind of like a, a lot of interesting nuggets and we'll just run through everything. The first one is, more than half the people, 52% said that AI is overrated. Are you seeing sentiment shift in your customers or like the people that you talk to, like as the months go by, or do you still see a lot of people, yeah, that are not in Silicon Valley, maybe say, hey, this is maybe not as world-changing as you all made it sound to be? Yes, yeah, so we're actually on the survey again, actually, the next few months, so I can let you know if you don't want to change It seems to me that it has settled down a bit in terms of sort of the, maybe like, I don't know, signal to noise, you could say, like, it seems like there's a little bit less noise than before. I think people are still trying to look for use cases. Uh, I'm saying with August and last year, like, United States, again, and uh, I think there are slightly more use cases, but still not substantially more. And I think as far as we can tell, uh, a lot of the engineers surveys, especially some of the comments that we saw, do feel like the companies are investing quite a bit in AI. And they're not sure where it's going to go yet, but they're like, right, it could be big. So I think we should keep on investing. I do think that based on what we are hearing from customers, if we're not seeing returns on like a year or something, there will be more skepticism. So I think there is like a, uh, it is time bound, if you will. So you finally gave us some numbers on Stack Overflow usage. I think that's been a Twitter meme for a while, whether or not ChatGPT kills Stack Overflow. In the survey, 58 people said they used it less, and 94% of them said they used it less because of Copilot and ChatGPT, which, yeah, I think it kind of makes sense. I know Stack Overflow tried to pull a whole thing. It's like, no, the traffic is going down because we changed the way we instrument our website, but I don't think anybody bought that. And then you had, right after that, expectation of job impact by function and operations people, eight out of 10, basically, they think it's gonna, AI is gonna really impact their job. Designers were the lowest one, 6.8 out of 10, but then all the examples you gave were designers <laughs> of, of job being impacted by AI. Do you think there's a bit of a 
dissonance maybe between like the human perception is like oh my job is like can possibly be automated it's funny that the operations people are like yeah it makes sense i wish i could automate <laughs> myself you know versus the designers or maybe they love their craft more yeah i don't know if you have any thoughts on who will accept the first you know that they should just embrace the technology and change the way they work yeah that's interesting i think it's probably going to be engineering driven i mean i think you two are very well maybe you two even started some of this wave sort of the ai engineer wave i think the companies that adopt AI the best, it is going to be engineering driven, I think, rather than like operations driven or anything else. And the reason for that is I think the rise of this like profile of an AI engineer, like AI is very, maybe it's kind of philosophical, like AI is a tool in my head. Like it is not a, in my head, I think we're actually pretty far from AGI, although so you know what happens, but AI is not like a, you know, thing that it's, it's not like a black box where like it does everything you want it to do. The models that we have today require like very specific prompting, for example, in order to get like, you know, really good results. And the reason for that is it's a tool that, you know, you can use it in specific ways. If you use it the wrong way, it's not going to produce good results for you, actually. It's not like by itself taking a job away, right? And so I think actually uh, to adopt AI, it's probably going to be going to have to be engineering first, basically, where engineers are playing around with it, figuring out the limitations of the models, figuring out like, oh, maybe like, Using vectorized databases is a lot better, for example. Maybe like prompting in this particular way is going to be a lot better, et cetera. And that's not the kind of stuff that I think like an operations team is going to really be like experimenting with necessarily. I think it really has to be engineering led. And then I think the question is, well, what are the engineers going to focus on first? Like I think they're going to focus on, you know, design first or like operations first. And that I think is more of a business decision. I think it's probably going to be more like, you know, the CEO, for example, says, Hey, you know, we're having trouble scaling this one function. So like, why don't we try using AI for that? And let's see what happens, uh, for example. And so in our case, for example, we are really, we have a lot of support issues. So, uh, what I mean by that is we have a really, really high performance support team, but we get a lot of tickets. And the reason for that is, you know, we're a very dynamic product. You can use it in so many different ways. And so we'll have a lot of questions for us, basically. And so we were looking at, well, you know, can we, for example, draft some replies and support tickets, you know, by AI, for example, can we allow our support agents to be, you know, hopefully, you know, double as uh, doubly productive as before, for example. And so I guess I would say it's like business needs driven, but then engineering driven after that. So like, you know, we, the business decides, okay, well, this is where AI could be most applied. And then we assign the project to an engineer and the engineer goes and figures it out. I honestly am not sure if like the operation were going to have much uh, of a, like if they accept or reject it, I, I don't know if that's going to change the outcome, if you will. So another interesting part was the importance of AI in hiring 45 percent of companies said they made their interviews more difficult in the in the engineering side made interviews more difficult to compensate for people using copilot and, and chat gpt has that changed every tool like have you yeah have you thought about it i don't, I don't know how much are, you're still involved with engineering hiring i get the company but i'm curious how we're scaling um difficulty of interviews even though the job is the same, right? So just because you're going to use AI doesn't mean the interview should be harder, but I guess it makes sense. Our sense basically of the survey, and this is true for what we believe too, is we are most, when we do engineering interviews, we are most interested in assessing like critical thinking or thinking, you know, on the spot. And I guess you know, when you're hiring an employee, you know, in the end, the, the job of the employee is to be productive. And we should issue whatever tools they want to be productive. So, you know, that's kind of our thinking too. However, we do think that, you know, if you're thinking about it from a first principles way, if your only method of like coding is literally copy pasting, you know, off of ChatGPT or like, you know, just pressing tab and copilot, I think that would be concerning. And so for that reason, we still do want to test for like, you know, fundamentals understanding of CompSci. 
Now that said, I think if you're able to use ChatGPT or Copilot, let's say competently, we do view that as a plus. We don't view it as a minus. But if you only use Copilot and you aren't able to reason about, like, you know, how to write a for loop, for example, or how to write FizzBuzz, that would be highly problematic. And so for us, what we do today is we basically screen share, uh, or we use a hackpad actually. So it's uh, sorry, I guess there's no Copilot there. You can sort of see what they're doing or see what they're thinking. And we really want to test for thinking, basically. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we ourselves internally have embraced you know, Copilot, and we would encourage engineers to go embrace Copilot too. But we do want to test for understanding of what you're doing rather than just copy pasting on Copilot. So the other one was AI adoption rate. Only 27% are in production. Of that 27%, 66% are internal use cases. Shout out to Retool. You know, do you have a mental model as to how people are gonna make the jump from like? using it internally to externally. Obviously, there's like all these different things like uh, privacy, you know, if an internal tool hallucinates, that's fine because you're paying people to use it basically versus if it hallucinates to your customer, there's a different bar. Because for you, if people build internal tool with Retool, there are external customers to you, you know? So I, I think you're on, on the flip side of it. Yeah, I think it's hard to say. Maybe a core retail belief is actually that most software built in the world is internal facing, actually, which actually sounds, may sound kind of surprising, you know, first time you're hearing this, but effectively, like, you know, we all work in Silicon Valley, right? We all work at businesses basically that sell software as, you know, as sort of a as business. And that's why all the software engineers that we hire basically work on external facing software, which makes sense because we're software companies. But if you look at most companies in the world, most companies in the world are actually not software companies. If you look at like, you know, the clothing manufacturer that I was talking about, they're not a software company. Like they don't sell software, you know, to make money. They sell clothing to make money. And most companies in the world are not software companies, actually. And so most of the engineers in the world, in fact, don't work at Silicon Valley companies. They work outside of Silicon Valley. They work in these sort of more traditional companies. So like if you look at the Forge of 100, for example, probably like 20 of them are software companies. You know, there are 480 of them are not software companies. And actually they employ those software engineers. And so most of the software engineers in the world and most of the code in the world actually goes towards these internal facing applications. And so like for all the reasons you said there, like I think hallucination matters less, for example, because you have someone checking the output and consumer. So hallucination is more okay. It's more acceptable as well. They yeah, actually be unreliable because it's uh, probabilistic and that's also okay. So I think it's kind of hard to imagine AI being adopted in a consumer way without the consumer like opting in. Like ChatGPT is very obviously a like, consumer. The consumer is like, you know, knows that it's ChatGPT. It's you know, using it. I don't know if it's going to make its way to like your banking app anytime soon. I maybe for like, even for support, it's hard because if it hallucinates, then, you know, it's actually quite bad for support if you're hallucinating, right? So it's, yeah, it's hard to say. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people, like you said, we all build software. So we expect that everybody else is building software for other people, but most people just want to use the software that, that we build out here. I think the last big bucket is like models breakdown. 80% of people you survey just use OpenAI. Some might experiment with smaller models. Any insights from your experience at Retool, like building some of the AI features? Have you guys thought about using open source models? Have you thought about fine tuning models for specific use cases? Or have you just found GPT-4 to just be great at most, most tasks? Yeah, so two things. One is that from a data privacy perspective, people are getting more and more okay with using a hosted model, like a GPT-4, for example. Especially because GPT-4 or OpenAI often has to have enterprise equipment to some companies already, because I think a lot of CIOs are just like, let's get this thing in-house, like, you know, let's use Azure, for example, and, you know, let's 
make it available for police conspiratorial. So I do think there is more acceptance, if you will, today uh, feeding data into GPT. That's not some sensitive data. People might not want to do so, like you know, feeding in like earnings results data. You know, three days before you announce earnings, like probably is a bad idea. Like, you probably don't want GPT writing your like earnings statement for you. So. Yeah, there's still some challenges like that that I think actually open source models could actually uh, help solve, like a lot of three, you know, when it comes to, and that could be exciting. So that's maybe just one thought. The second thought is, I think OpenAI has been really quite smart with sort of their pricing, and they've been pretty aggressive of like, let's get, you know, let's create this model and sell it at a pretty cheap price and to make it such that there's no reason for you to use any other model. Just from like a you know, strategy perspective, I don't know if that's going to work. And the reason for that is you have really well-funded players like a Google or like a Facebook, for example, that are actually quite interested. Like, I think if OpenAI is competing with startups, OpenAI would win for sure. Like at this point, OpenAI is so far ahead from both a model and a pricing perspective that like there is no reason for it to go just really, I think, in my opinion, at least a startup model. But if like, you know, Facebook is not going to give up on AI, like Facebook is investing a lot in AI, in fact. And so competing against a large thing company uh, is making a model open source. I think that is challenging. Now, however, where we are right now is I think GPT-4 is so far in terms of performance that, and I would say a model performance is so important right now because like the average, uh, you can argue Llama 2 is actually so far behind, but like customers don't want to use Llama 2 because it's so far behind right now. And so that I think is part of the challenge. As AI progress slows down, so if we get like Llama 4, Llama 5, for example, maybe it's a comparable at that point, like GPT-5 or GPT-6, like it may get to the point where it was like, look, I just want to use Lava. Like, it's you know, safer for me to you know, host it on prem. It's just as fast, just as cheap. Like, why not, basically? So, but I think right now we are in this state where OpenAI is executing really well, I think. And right now they're thriving, but let's see what happens in the next you know, year or two. So, well, what are you going to ask differently for the next survey? Like, what, what info do you really actually want to know that's, that's going to change your worldview? I wasn't ask you that, but if you have any ideas, let me know. For us, actually, we were planning on asking very similar questions because for us, the value of the survey is mostly seeing changes over time and understanding, like, okay, wow, like, let's, like, for example, GPT for Turbo and PS is declined. You know, that would be interesting, actually. One thing that was actually pretty shocking to us is, let me find the exact number, but like, one change that we saw, for example, was like if you compare GPT 3.5 and PS, I want to say it was like 14 or something. Like, it was like not high, actually. The GPT-4 MPS thing was like 45 or something like that. So it was actually quite a bit higher. So just, I think that kind of progress over time is what we're most interested in seeing is, you know, our models getting worse, models getting better. Are people still loving PG Vector? Do people still love Mongo? You know, stuff like that. That I think is the most interesting uh, thing. So. It seems like you're very language model focused. You know, I think that there's an increasing interest in multimodality in AI. And I don't really know how that is going to manifest. Obviously, GPT-4 vision, as well as Gemini, both have multimodal capabilities. There's a smaller subset of open source models that have multimodal features as well. Like I, we just released an episode today talking about Idafix from Hugging Face. And I would like to understand how people are adopting or adapting to the different modalities that are now coming online for them, what their demand is relative to, uh, for like, let's say generative images versus just visual comprehension versus audio versus uh, text-to-speech. Like, what do they want? What do they need? And, and what's the sort of sta forced, like stack ranked, you know, preference order? It's something that we are trying to actively understand because uh, you know there's this sort of multimodality war but really like multimodality it's this term that like it's like an umbrella term for like actually a whole bunch of different things that are quite honestly like not really that related to each other unless 
you know, in the limit, but to, it tends towards like maybe everything you use as transformers and ultimately everything can be merged together with a, with a text layer because text is the universal interface. But if you're given the choice between like, if I, I want to implement an audio feature versus I want to implement an image feature versus video, whatever, what do, what are people needing the most? Uh, what should we face to pay the most attention to? What, what is going to be the biggest market for builders to build in? I don't know. And I figure we'll just kind of zoom out a little bit. So just a general founder questions. Um, you have a lot of fans in the founder community. You know, I think you're just generally well known as a very sort of straightforward, plain spoken uh, person about, about just business. Something that is the perception from Joseph is that you have been notably sort of sales led in, in the past. That's his perception. I, I actually never got that, but I, I, I'm not that close to, to sort of your sales motion. And it's interesting to understand your market, like the internal tooling market versus all the competition that's out there, right? There's a bunch of open source retools and there's, there's a bunch of like, you know, I don't know how you sort of uh, categorize the, you know, the, the, the various things out there, but effect effectively what he's seeing and what he's asking is how do you manage between sort of enterprise versus ubiquity or, or in other words, enterprise versus bottom up, right? I was actually surprised when he told me to ask that question because I had always assumed that you were a self-serve sign up, like bottom ups, bottom up led, but it seems like you have a counter consensus view on, on that. Yeah. So actually when retail first started, we started mostly by doing sales actually. And the reason we started by doing sales was mostly because we weren't sure whether we had product market fit and sales seemed to be the best way of proving whether we had product market fit out because I think it's true of a lot of AI projects. You can like you know, launch a project and people might use it a bit and people might stop using it. And you're like, well, I don't know. Is that product market fit? Is that not? It's hard to say actually. However, if you work very closely with the customer in sort of a sales-led way, it's easier to understand, you know, their sort of requests, understand their needs and stuff like that, and then actually go build a product that actually serves them really well. And so basically we viewed sales as like working with customers, basically, which is like, you know, I think actually quite a I think it's a better way to describe it what sales is in an early stage company. And so we did a lot of that certainly when we got started. I think we over the last maybe five years, maybe like three years ago, four years or something like that, I think we have invested more on the self-serve ubiquity side. And the reason for that is when we started Retool, we always wanted actually some percent of software that get built inside of Retool. Whether AI software or just software more broadly, UIs, you know, whatever, but like software basically. And for us, we're like, we think that maybe one day, you know, 10% of all the code in the world could be written inside of Retool actually, or 10% of the software could be you know, running on Retool, which would be really, really cool. And for us to achieve that vision, it really does require like broad basis option of the platform. It can't just be like a, oh, you know, only like a thousand customers, but the largest thousand companies in the world use it. It has to be like all the developers in the world use it. And for us, you know, there's like, well, I think 25, 30 million developers in the world. That's the question is how do you, you know, get to all the developers? And the only way to get to that most developers is not by sales. You can't have a salesperson talk to 30 million people. You know, it has to be basically a, in this sort of bombs up product led ubiquity kind of way, basically. And so. For us, we actually uh, changed our focus to be ubiquity actually last year. So our North Star metric used to always be sort of revenue generated or a new ARR generated. We actually changed it to be number of developers building on the platform actually last year. And that I think was actually a really clarifying change because obviously revenue was important, you know, with funds, you know, a lot of, you know, our product and funds, of, you know, uh, the business, but we're going to fail if we aren't able to get to like something like, you know, 10, 20, 30 million developers one day. If we can't convince uh, all developers in the region a better way of building a sort of class of software, let's say internal applications for today. And so I think that has been a pretty good outcome. Like if I think about, you know, the last, like, I don't know, five years of retool, like I think the starting off with sales so you can build revenue and then you can actually build traction and you can hire more slowly 
I think it was really good. I do think the focus towards like, you know, bottoms up ubiquity also is really important because it helps us get to our long-term outcome. What's interesting, I think, is that long-term ubiquity actually is harder for us to achieve outside of Silicon Valley. Like to your point, I think in Silicon Valley, retool is like reasonable ubiquitous. I think like if you're starting a startup today and you're looking to build a internal UI, you've, you're probably going to consider retool at least. Maybe you don't choose it because you're like, hey, I'm not ready for it yet or something, but you're going to consider it at least. And when you want to build it, I think it's actually a high probability you will actually end up choosing it. It's awesome. But it's that you know, if you think about a, you know a random developer working at let's say like an Amazon for example, today at Amazon actually we have I think eleven separate business units that use Retool at this point, which is really awesome. So Amazon, so Amazon actually a big Retool customer, but like the average user at Amazon probably has never heard of Retool actually, and so that is where the challenge really is: is how do we get like you know I don't know let's say ten thousand developers at Amazon building via Retool, and that again I think is still a bottom of the ubiquity thing. I don't think that's like a I don't think we can like you know go to Amazon and knock on every developer's door or send out an email to every developer and be like go use Retool and ignore us actually. I think it has to be use the product and you love it you tell your coworker about it. And so for us I think bottoms up ubiquity by marrying that with sort of uh, enterprise or the community business has been something that's really uh, near and dear to our hearts. So. Yeah, and just like general market thoughts on AI, do you think spend a lot of time thinking about like AGI stuff or regulation or safety or like uh, what interests you most, uh, you know, outside of the retool context? Yeah, in my opinion, I mean, I think there's a lot of hype in AI right now, and there's again not, not too many use cases. So for us, at least from a retool context, it really is how do we bring AI to, and have it actually meet business problems. And again, it's actually pretty hard. Like I think most founders that I meet in the AI space are always looking for use cases. They never have enough use cases. Right? Sort of real use cases people to pay money for. So that's I think really where the retool interest comes from. Me personally, I think philosophically, yeah, I've been thinking recently myself a bit about sort of intentionality and AGI and like, you know, what would it take for me to say, yes, you know, GPTX or, you know, any sort of model actually is AGI. I think it's kind of challenging because it's like, I think if you look at like evolution, for example, like humans have been programmed, you know, to do like three things, if you will, like, you know, we are here to survive, you know, we're here to reproduce and we're here to like, you know, maybe this is just two things, I suppose. Uh, so like, it's basically yeah, to survive, you have to go eat food, you know, for example, uh, to survive, maybe like having more resources to help us, you want to go make money, you know, for example, uh, to reproduce, maybe you should go date, you know, or whatever, you get married and stuff like that. Right. So like, that's, we have a program to do that. And humans that, you know, are good at that have propagated. And so humans that, you know, we're not interested in surviving probably have disappeared. Or just due to natural selection, humans that were not interested in producing also disappeared because, uh, or, you know, there are less of them, you could say, because they just, they just don't care not, basically. And so, so it almost feels like humans have sort of naturally self-selected for these like two aims. I think the third aim I was thinking about was like, does it matter to be happy? Like maybe it does. So maybe like happier humans, you know, survival, it's hard to say. So I'm not sure. But if you think about that in the relative to like AIs, if you will, right now we're not really selecting AIs for like, you know, reproduction. Like it's not like, you know, we're being like, hey, AI, you know, you should go make 30 other AIs. And, you know, those that make the most AIs, you know, are the ones that survive. We're not saying that. So it is kind of interesting sort of thinking about where intentionality for humans come from. And like, you, I think you can argue that intentionality for humans basically comes out of these three things. You know, like, you know, if you want to be happy, you want to survive, you want to reproduce. That's like basically your sort of goal, you know, in life. Whereas like the AI doesn't really have that, but maybe you could program it in. Like if you, you know, prompt inject, for example, like, hey, AI, you can just, you know, go, go do these three things. And you know, you can even create a simulation, if you will, like all these AIs, you know, in the world, for example. And maybe you don't have AGI in that world, which I think is kind of interesting. So that's kind of stuff I've been thinking. That's what I talk about uh, with some of my friends uh, from a sort of philosophical perspective, but yeah, it's kind of interesting.
yeah, my, my quick response to that is we're kind of doing that, maybe not at the sort of trained uh, final model level, but at least at the data sets level, there's a lot of knowledge being transferred from model to model. And if you want to think about that sort of evolutionary selection pressure, it, it is happening in there. And, you know, I guess one of the early concerns about being in Sydney and it, it sort of like bootstrap, self-bootstrapping AGI is that uh, it actually is, this in, if, if these models are sentient, it actually is in their incentive to get as much of their data out there into our data sets so that they can bootstrap themselves in the next version as they get trained. <laughs> that is a scary sobering thought that we, that we need to um, try to be on and top of. David, I know we're both fan of um, Hofstadter's uh, GB. Um, and, and actually, so in uh, one of your posts on the Sequoia blog, you referred to the um, Anteater. I don't even know if you call them chapters and GB. It's just kind of like this th this continuous riff. But basically, like how ants are like not intelligent, but like uh, ant colony has signs of intelligence. And I think Hofstadter then used that to say, hey, you know, neurons are kind of like similar and then computers maybe will be the same i've always been curious if like we're drawing the wrong conclusion for like neural networks where people are like oh each way it is like a neuron and then you tie them together it should be like a brain but maybe like the neuron is like different models that then get tied together to make the brain you know we're kind of looking at the wrong level of abstraction yeah i think there's a lot of interesting philosophical discussions to have and uh, uh, sean and i recorded a monthly recap podcast yesterday and we had a similar discussion on what did you say, Sean, on the plane and the bird? I think that was a good analogy. The, the sour lesson. Are we, are we using the wrong analogies? Because we're trying to be inspired by human evolution and human development. And we are trying to apply that analogy strictly to machines. But every in every example in history, machines have always evolved differently than humans. So why should we expect AI to be any different? Yeah, it is interesting because it does feel like yeah, if you sort of peer under the hood of AGI, if you insist that AGI, we have only shoot AGI for things like a human, well, that is the Turing test, I suppose, but whether that is a good point, like if it works, no, it's not the Turing test. The Turing test basically is if the output is the same as a human, then I'm happy, basically. I don't really care about what's going on inside. And so it feels like caring about the inside is like a pretty high bar. Like, why do you care? It's kind of like the plain thing, like if it flies, it's not a bird. I agree. It does not fly this, you know, necessarily the same way as bird uh, physically it does i suppose but you see what i mean like it's not the same under the hood but it's okay because it flies and that's what i care about and i it does seem to be like agi is probably like doesn't think and can it achieve like you know outcomes that i give it and can achieve its own outcomes and if it can do that like i kind of don't care what it is like under the hood it may not need to be human like at all it doesn't matter to me so i, I agree Awesome. No, we kept it long. I actually have GB right right here on, on my bookshelf. Sometimes I pick it up and I'm like, wow. man, I can't yeah. believe I got through it once. It's <laughs> it's quite it's quite the piece of work. It's a lot of fun though. So Yeah. No, I mean I I, I started studying physics in undergrad, so you know, it's one of the edgy things that every physicist starts <laughs> starts going through. But thank you so much for your time, David. This was a lot of fun and looking forward to the twenty twenty four set of AI results to see how, how things change. Yeah, I'll let you know. So, Bye. thanks, both. Bye-bye.